This podcast is brought to you by Uni Pizza Ovens, the world's number one pizza oven brand. Welcome to the Pizza Pod Party. With Arthur Bavino and Alfred Schultz. On today's show... Best-selling author Susan Orlean of The New Yorker is our guest. Then we've got pizza news, and our topic is pepperoni. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Alfred Schultz. Welcome to the Pizza Party, pal. And I'm Arthur Bovino of NYC Best Pizza. I'm the head of pizza content for Uni Pizza Ovens, in addition to being compared to the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team and Serena Williams, I may now be the subject of Susan Orlean's first book after finishing her memoir. Unless, Alfred, you think I'll be in her memoir, maybe? Wow, maybe we've created a monster uh, from this interview. <laughs> You've created yes. a monster. What an awesome conversation we had with Susan Orlean. You know her from all of her books, her work at The New Yorker, and one of my, I love the movie adaptation, and I just love the whole conceit of that movie. So the fact that she's basically the subject of that movie to a degree, and the fact that we uh, had a lot of fun with her talking about you. I don't want to spoil it, but she was a gamer. As you would oh, say, dude. she was awesome. And there was an uni oven in the backdrop of her Zoom, her office, and it wasn't planned. We didn't know no. this just happened organically. And that reminds me, did you know we are on TikTok? Now, I know I it's did. the thing the kids do and we are two middle-aged men, but we have some awesome stuff on there. A ton of clips from shows. I know it's a new year. You can see basically a clip from basically every single show we've done last year. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. You know, highlights for me are um, Candace Bushnell's. Yeah. You got to see her Hamptons bedroom, which is just awesome. It was pink. It was like a Barbie dream house in the best way possible. Uh, You get to see Michael Ian Black and I have an awesome argument about him eating a Domino's pizza among other things. So definitely check Mo that Rocca out. shouting out at his mom, coming down to pick up some food he left out for her from the closet he was recording in. Thank I you, Mo, for doing that. I don't think I recorded that or that's on the mm. TikTok, but that is a clip that's from a, a really fun uh, episode with Mo. But Mo does have clips talking about his love of pizza parlors. And he is so eloquent. And there's actually little things he does in clips where he's using his hands. He's so expressive. Mm -hmm. So watch those clips. We're also on Instagram. So follow us all these places. We have tons of clips. And also, while we're at it, rate and review. That's super helpful. I haven't seen a review in too long. So I want to see a review, uh, hopefully a good one. And tell your friends about this podcast because we would love to get as many new listeners as humanly possible. It really does help. So thanks for spreading the word. It's the Pizza Pod Party special guest. Susan Orlean is a best-selling author and longtime staff writer for The New Yorker. Her book, 1998's The Orchid Thief, was famously adapted to the film Adaptation, where Meryl Streep plays a version of her. Susan is the author of 2018's The Library Book and 2021's On Animals, and she also wrote for HBO's How To with John Wilson. We're honored to have Susan Orlean on the Pizza Pod Party. We went through a lot with her. She was awesome. We discussed Cleveland Pizza Her native Cleveland pizza, we discuss her writing process, a potential new muse for her, 
her pizza cooking habits, and a lot more. And also, I want to quickly explain How To with John Wilson, a show she wrote for. It's a crazy documentary show that was on HBO that was, I don't want to say avant-garde because that sounds too uh, heady, but it was it was like something he ha- basically makes a montage of footage and then creates a narrative around that footage of New York City, and it's a lot about strange New York things and characters. And it's about the conceit is that every episode teaches you how to do something through this montage, but really it doesn't have much to do with anything other than it's very silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how else to explain it, but it's hilarious and awesome that she wrote for that show. Yeah, it's also um, HBO, you know, at its kind of quirkiest, but also yes. most kind of out there and uh, premium programming, you know, taking flyers on stuff. And, uh, you know, you like to see that kind of stuff on TV. But one thing, too, I want to mention about Susan, I was impressed with her. She does this thing where she's not like name dropping, but she clearly... Mm. Every place she lives, she has the coolest friends. And I love that. And it was inspiring and uh, something I've always tried to do. And she clearly did it very, very well. So keep that in mind when you're listening to this really fun interview. Well, she kind of name drops without name dropping at yeah. least once also. A bunch, which, yeah. you know, And I didn't even notice it until you said that, which is how skilled she was at it. Because I really didn't feel that way either. That's, that's a great point, Alfred. It just she was clearly surrounding herself with the coolest people in the coolest places. So... Very impressive. She is awesome. Really fun conversation. Susan Orlean on the Pizza Pod Party, ladies and gentlemen. So no pressure on any of this. It's all uh, fairly silly, but a very serious subject, pizza. So, Oh, my God, uh, yes. Uh, (laughs) Extremely. And I live with a teenage boy, so I can tell you pizza is in our house 100% of the time. Well, that's interesting because I was reading uh, you had a piece in Medium where you were talking about being an empty nester and how pizza boxes are are less of a thing now. So I'm wondering how has pizza sort of evolved or maybe devolved in your house since uh, your uh, your son has been le- uh, sort of less than a full time member of your household? Oh, well, he's actually taking a gap year. So this brief oh, okay. period of time where the pizza delivery slowed to a trickle. Um, ha- we, we've re-embraced with gusto. And, nice. <laughs> um, and in fact, this morning when he got up, I said, oh, do you want me to make you some breakfast? He said, no, that's okay. I've got some leftover pizza. And I thought, <laughs> okay, we are fully back. It, it, you know, he... and. He'll have the rest of the leftover pizza for lunch. Yeah. So it, it 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 is kind of all for food groups. Do the pizza boxes generally come from the same place or different places? I'm curious where they're where they're coming from. That's interesting. Um, we are always looking for the divine pizza because mm. we feel Aren't like we the very very best pizza that any of us ever had is at a a place in Hudson, New York. And we've been eating that pizza for many years and feel like hands down, it's the best pizza ever. So we're always on the quest to somehow find a, a substitute since we're not in the Hudson Valley and we can't access that pizza. 
So we'll go on binges where, you know, we find one place, we order from it pretty consistently, and then we hear about another one. My son now is very um, loyal to a place that coincidentally was started by the son of my brother's best friend. So we first went out of courtesy, feeling like, well, you know, he's starting his own pizzeria. We need to at least go and pay our respects. And it turns out to be really good pizza. So that's what we're favoring at the moment. Are we keeping these places secret or can we shout them out? No, (laughs) no. Well, so the place in the Hudson Valley, and they have uh, two or three locations. It's called Baba Louie's. And they have a sourdough crust. And it's just perfect. They're the absolutely the best pizza I would. I I mean, I know people have different preferences, but I've eaten and in New Haven, the, you know, famous, oh my God, best pizza in the world. I put this above it. Interesting. Certainly. Um, The pizza that we are now patronizing that happens to be owned by the son of my brother's best friend is called Gorilla Pie. And it's in North Hollywood. It's just takeout, and it's really good. It's really good pizza. And, of course, we're thrilled because it's nice to patronize a place that is owned by someone you know. But we, to be honest, we wouldn't do it out of just out of charity. It's too important to have a good pizza. And, you know, there's other good pizza, but I would say, and I know people will hang me in effigy for saying this, but... <laughs> I don't think of L.A. as being a real pizza town. It's a real burger town. You clearly have a love for pizza. You're expressing that very well. But I'm curious, you know, you're also a Midwesterner uh, born in Ohio. And I'm I'm from the Midwest. And uh, that's why one of the reasons why you're so smart, obviously. (laughs) But so where did this love of pizza come from? Where did this derive from? Did you eat pizza a lot in Ohio? No. You know, there was one pizza place in, you know, I grew up in the suburbs and there was one, everybody went to the same pizza place, Geraci's Pizza. We never ate Domino's or like fast food pizza at, at all. And I didn't eat tons of pizza as a kid. I mean, my mother was the kind of mom who cooked every meal from scratch. So we didn't have a lot of nights where my mother would say, oh, kids, let's get in the car and go get pizza. I didn't cook a meal. Never. It just didn't happen. And if we were given a choice, which we occasionally were given to pick where to go, we would always go to McDonald's. You know, that's what we wanted. So it was not a huge part of my childhood at all. I think I probably started uh, eating pizza more when I was in college. It's cheap and there's a lot of it and you can share it with a bunch of people and it, it really is a dorm food. Yeah. I went to college at University of Michigan and there were a lot of good pizza places in Ann Arbor. Even it was funny, there were a lot of Greek restaurants, but they had good pizza. You know, I think that college towns, knowing that this is the main food that college students eat and can afford, they all do pizza. 
before we get too far from Ohio, I just want to ask, because I've never experienced them. Have you ever had, Susan, Briar Hill style or Ohio Valley style pizza, which are both no. mentioned as Ohio born styles? Tell me what they are, but I don't think I did. Uh, the Briar Hill style, I think, started out at some like as a working class inspired pizza style at like a fundraiser or something in the 50s. It's like compared to a Philadelphia tomato pie. And then Ohio Valley style, I think, is from um, DiCarlo's. And there's like a hot cold kind of thing going on there with these rectangular mm. square cut with a chunky sauce or something like that. I haven't had them, so I don't know. It's funny, you suddenly triggered a memory that I feel I must include here, which is even though we didn't eat tons of pizza when I was a kid, one thing we did do is Cleveland had a Little Italy. Mm -hmm. And in Little Italy, which we would often go on a weekend down to Little Italy and just wander around, they had real sheet pan pizza that you would buy by the slice. A lot of them barely had cheese on them. Mm -hmm. It was a crust that, it was a bit doughy, but it was crusty where it touched the pan. And it was sort of soaked it with tomato. And then it had only a little bit of cheese. I, I barely remember cheese being on it. And you would buy a slice and it was a rectangular slice. And we loved it. We absolutely loved it. But this was in an era where there wasn't a lot of food delivery. So we only got this pizza when we would go to Little Italy. And it was a real, uh, uh, it was something we associated specifically with that neighborhood. There wasn't a place in the suburbs where I lived that made that kind of pizza. It was. Got it very specific to that neighborhood. So I had really, um, I was passionate about that pizza. And the only other time I ever had that was when I was in Italy and had that kind of pizza in Italy. And I mm -hmm. thought, wow, that's really, that was really Italian as opposed to, you know, the more American pizza with a lot of cheese and toppings and all of the accoutrements. So the University of Michigan, you're from Ohio going to University of Michigan. I'm going to <laughs> ignore that dichotomy because my mom was a Ohio State alum. So I know that that's uh, there's sort of a traitor. No comment. No comment. <laughs> element to all of this. But uh, um, so but did you were you were people at all cognizant of and I don't even know if it was much of a thing then. But like, you know, Detroit style pizza is such a big deal right now. And, you know, Ann Arbor has itself sort of a and Arthur knows more about this, but like more a, a huge pizza history. So were you taking pizza at all seriously then or was it, as you said, sort of like a dorm food kind of thing? I would say it was more of a dorm food. Yeah. And in my college years, I did start experiencing food that I had never had growing up. I and mean, it was the first time I think that I had had any Chinese food besides Cantonese. And, you know, the, the first time that I had tasted, you know, more of like Szechuan style Chinese, because that was when that was first coming to the U.S. But we rarely went into Detroit. Any food that was particular to Detroit, we weren't 
experiencing. I mean, we would go in maybe once a year or twice a year, mostly for concerts. So, and also I did not cook at all. I didn't know how to boil water. And when I first moved off campus, frankly, I have no memory of how I ate because I didn't know how to cook at all. My first year off campus, I was living with my sister and she didn't know how to cook either. And then the second year I was living, who was I living? I guess with a friend and we didn't know how to cook. So we certainly wouldn't have attempted something like a pizza. I mean, we probably ate pasta maybe, or I have, I mean, honestly, I, maybe I didn't eat anything and we probably had a lot of popcorn. I'm guessing that you were then going to the original Cottage Inn then in Ann Arbor. Was oh, that? Yeah. Okay, got it. Cottage Inn for sure. And, you know, also remember when, and I was not a foodie and there were friends of mine who were then just becoming interested in food, one of whom founded Zingerman's. So, he, you know, he became a food mogul, but I remember at the time when he said he was going to start a deli and we all thought a deli, like, why would you go into the food business? It's such a weird thing to do. (laughs) I mean, it it really, I think attitudes towards food really changed in that era. And people went from just eating to actually becoming uh, interested in what they were eating and, And I didn't eat a lot of junk food, so I want to make that clear, but I didn't think a lot about what I was eating until really the next period of my life. Well, is that next period then moving to New York and becoming a writer? Well, no. First, I moved to Portland, Oregon, right out of college. And one of my very best friends, who remains one of my very best friends, was a restaurant critic and cookbook writer. and. First of all, she would take me along on a lot of reviews, but also suddenly I was immersed in food culture and Portland at that time was, you know, just bubbling up as a food mecca and there were just a million restaurants and young chefs and a whole energy around the food scene you know, also it was drawing a lot of people who were not traditional. They were intellectual and they were educated and they were coming to the food world uh, uh, sort of obliquely and bringing whole, you know, a philosophy about it and uh, politics about it and a whole passion about food that I had never been exposed to. So I was the beneficiary of it. I still didn't know how to cook, but I had a lot of friends who were real foodies and I enjoyed the fruits of their labor. And was Ruth Reichel that friend, the restaurant critic friend, or is it another restaurant? No, although she's, um, I, she is a friend who I made in the Hudson Valley, but through this friend in Portland, who's, um, a very prominent, uh, food writer, Karen Brooks. And I guess I met Ruth through Karen, but it was very funny for someone who learned to cook really late in life. 
I have so many friends who are cookbook authors and, you know, serious, hardcore chefs. And I was always the person who was like, oh, it's a potluck. Can I bring the wine? Because I don't know how to cook. Well, and Karen was on, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Netflix's Chef's Table also. So yeah, where she's yeah. about pizza, and, oh, I think, about pizza. Yes, she was doing a thing about pizza. That's right. And, um, you know, she has a very broad knowledge of food. And um, but that particular episode was about pizza and about um, I can't remember the name of the pizza place. But Portland, when I moved there wasn't a particularly pizza-centric town. There was a lot of interesting food, but it didn't have a a big pizza culture. It's since become a lot bigger on the pizza scene. But on that point, just quickly, did you ever go out with any of these restaurant critic friends on reviews of places that serve pizza? Do you have any any memories or notable things? Think yes, there. I we went to uh, there was a pizza place in Portland that Karen reviewed called Pizza Regalia that was really great. And I became a little obsessed. You know, I feel like pizza for a lot of people is sort of the Madeline, the Proust's Madeline, that you, you have a pizza that somehow achieves uh, a sort of pizza ideal, and then you spend a lot of your life pursuing (laughs) it. Yeah. And then you may come across another one and that that becomes your holy grail. So pizza regalia for a long time was the pizza that I was trying to recreate and find because then eventually they went out of business. But also I left Portland and I kept hankering for their pizza and it was very particular version of pizza and I tried and failed to reclaim it in New York. When did you then uh, move to New York then and become a writer for uh, The New Yorker? Oh, well, I started at The New Yorker in 86, um, became a staff writer in 92. So I I had moved there and had been in New York until 2003. How does uh, your relationship with food and your writing, how does that play? Do you eat while you write or is it something you have to keep them completely separate? I do keep them really separate. I, I, I for a very long time, had a massive chewing gum habit okay. while I was writing. And I do think a lot of writers are very oral while they're writing. Um, I'm... I don't think I'm the only writer who has either chewed a lot of gum or smoked a lot of cigarettes uh, while writing. I I just think it's some kind of physical reaction to sitting and thinking hard. So thank goodness I was not smoking, but I was chewing gum like a mad woman. And, you know, I knew it wasn't good for me, but I... It felt at least that I wasn't eating. And I do know people who snack obsessively while they're eating. I think it's all the same thing. There's something comforting or you you just feel this urge to do something oral while you're writing. So I never was a snacker while I wrote. Thank goodness. 
But pizza does feature in your writing. So in, in some of your writing, I mean, there is the, the American male at age 10. And it's in yeah. the first graph you're talking about, you know, you and uh, Colin Duffy, if you were to get married, you'd have like matching superhero notebooks, but also uh, you'd eat pizza and candy for all your meals. And, you know, right. you have all, you, then pizza features there several other times. And interestingly, when I was digging around, I mean, also you wrote Throw Me a Bone. Uh, where you have a pizza recipe for your dog, Cooper, which I wanted to ask you about. But even in adaptation, there's this scene associated with the Orchid Thief where Charlie Kaufman is sitting at a booth at the California Pizza (laughs) Kitchen trying to figure out how he's going to adapt your book and and then like goes on to talk to his therapist about the waitress that he wants to hit on and then goes back to California Pizza Kitchen and has this disastrously embarrassing cringy moment where he tries to ask her out and there's a lot of pizza there associated with you even though you didn't you know write the screenplay so i'm just i'm curious to get a little bit about how pizza features in your writing it, it's funny well i think that um food is such a part of the texture of who we are I think I notice when I'm profiling somebody or writing about a place or a situation, I'm very conscious of the food people are eating. It's such a signifier. It's such a a, a meaningful element of who they are in terms of age and class and um, socioeconomic position. And it, it's you would, I think, be missing a huge piece of a personality if you didn't notice the way people eat. In the case of the American man, I was trying to capture, particularly in that first paragraph, what I thought a 10-year-old's idea of heaven would be. And as far as I knew, for a 10-year-old boy, the food that would be heaven was pizza and candy. Mm -hmm. Those were the only two foods he seemed excited about eating, interested in eating. And somehow they they were platonically ideal. They were these were the ultimate food products. So as I was spinning this fantasy of what my life would be like if I married this 10 year old boy, I was accepting the fact that our food ranged from pizza to candy, and that would be it, <laughs> and nothing in between. Um, and, you know, it, it it is, I guess there's something, it's like a touchstone almost. It It's such a, there's something so interesting about the way pizza fits in our culture, and it's different from burgers, which people would argue are the ultimate American food, and the primary reason is because you share pizza. You do yeah. not share a burger. You eat a burger. It you is can, but you kind of destroy it. Like slicing a burger and have to share it with somebody can be done, but yeah. it's not the same. Well, you certainly would never share a burger with four people. Right. No. You would yeah. never say, oh, let's, we're going to have a bunch of people over to watch movies. Uh, let's order burgers. I mean, you, <laughs> you just wouldn't do it. So it's a communal food the way Many of the other foods that are very common just aren't. And I think for little boys, in the case of this 10-year-old boy, you eat it with your hands. You, you know, dive in with your friend and tear apart this pizza. I mean, it's very primal. And I think it's just different and more 
um, there's a, there's more wish fulfillment with the pizza for whatever reason that even though 10 year old boys love hamburgers too, I don't think it fills the same fantasy of something. Also, my guess is that because your mom might cook you a hamburger and it feels like food that your mom makes, chances are your mom doesn't make your pizza. So there's, there is also this magical element that someone else made it and brought it to your house. You're, you were trying to achieve something specific in your writing in that first graph, as you just described. But you've also mentioned it when you wrote the Shoot the Moon in 1993. Pizza features in there several times also. So pizza, and when you've written about junk food, pizza makes its appearance there when you're talking about the Choco Taco. So I I would counter, I push back a little bit, that, that it's not just maybe something you're trying to achieve, but there is also that the touchstone aspect of it that you mentioned before also. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting because sometimes people reading my work notice tropes that I don't notice. And I think probably that's because a lot of your writing is kind of unconscious. And so if you're saying, you know, you mention it here, there and there and there, and I'm sitting here sort of aghast thinking, wow, I didn't notice <laughs> you're, that. You're really just a pizza writer, to, by the way. You just I, didn't yeah, know I it. Didn't you're here on that. the couch and I'm just giving you your anal- my, my analysis well, here. It's we all pizza. I mean, I'm, I'm it sure could also I be that asked... I'm looking for things and finding them. That's all. And you've had a storied no, writing I, career. I actually, I do also think that... Um, Orchids are the pizzas of the flower world. I think everyone knows that. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, they unfold, they bloom once every two years. I mean, it's obvious. To keep. Yeah. But I think um, as a person who sort of collects information about the world as I'm observing, uh, there are certain things that catch my eye repeatedly that I'm not even aware of. Um, now it could also be that I've written a a fairly large amount about young men, you know, shoot the moon, American man. These are both portraits of young men. And I think my guess is if you did a portrait of a 10 year old girl, pizza would not figure in her life in the same way. I mean, not that she would eschew pizza entirely, but I, I just don't think it would have the same prominence. And it is. And also, I've written about a lot of people who don't have a lot of money. And pizza is a food that's very accessible to just about everybody. True. One thing, too, that has come up, and I'm not the first person to point this out, but you have in uh, in different prominent ways featured and focused uh, your energy on people, on subjects that are obsessive, that their obsession has sort of ostracized them from regular society. So I think a logical question from there is, are you considering using <laughs> Arthur as a subject matter because his pizza <laughs> ob- obsession has really destroyed his life for the most part with other oh, people? Oh, yes. I mean, okay. look, this is a topic that I've returned to with pleasure mm-hmm. many, many times. People who cannot, who see the world through a single, very narrow portal. Pizza maybe is slightly broader just because physically they're big. 
But yeah. I think people who organize their life around pizza, I mean, this is it. I have a friend who's a barbecue obsessive. And he is so obsessed that he actually trained to, you know, be a serious like barbecue master and then launched a television show, I think, on the Food Network about barbecue. I mean, it became his whole life. (laughs) And, you know, this is the sort of thing that I find very interesting, how people can find a very specific point in the constellation of life and make it their uh, North Star. And Arthur, I think you are sort of a sitting duck (laughs) for my attention. Makes sense. I'm always a sitting duck for Alfred too. So there you go. Well, I think we have to, you know, this is a good time to sort of cut to the chase. You have yourself an uni oven. Uh, This was not done on purpose, but you, you let me know as soon as I reached out to you. And, you know, I'll let Arthur uh, ask away and, and quiz you about all of the amazing things you're probably uh, using that oven for. Well, Susan, I see it's a I'm, I'm guessing it's a Coda 16 that you have there in the background <laughs> from what from what I can see. Or is it a Coda 12? I think it's a 16. I, I'm not sure. Okay, I, yeah, I honestly I don't. Just get, it, it's the wider. Just, it looks like it's the the wider <laughs> gas oven pizza oven. I'm just curious, you know. How did you come to, did you get an, an uni as a, as a pandemic purchase? Was this something inspired from your son or is something that you do as a family? How did you come to start making pizza like this at home? I, I know you went to culinary school at one point also, so it's not like you don't have the cooking experience, but I'm just interested how you, how you started this pizza journey. Well, it actually has a little bit of a backstory. When I finally learned how to cook, and as you said, I went to culinary school because I thought I really need to learn how to cook. Um, One of the things I found really daunting was deciding what to cook every night. It just felt like there are 20 million possible things to cook. And how do you pick? So I came up with a plan that every Monday I would make pizza. Every Tuesday I would make pasta. Every Wednesday I would make some chicken dish. I love that. To narrow down my choices. And then I found it much easier. So I began making pizza at home using a pizza stone. And I would sometimes make my own dough. And then I discovered that the pizza place across the street from me in New York would would sell the dough. And it made it an incredibly easy, nice dinner. And it was really fun. And I would try all sorts of different oddball toppings. And it was great. And it gave me the confidence to think, oh, well, I can make pizza. Anyway, over the years, this habit sort of ended. And actually, I was married to someone else at the time. So my whole life changed because I got divorced. And then I was no longer doing this cooking routine quite the same way. And a year or two ago, we went to dinner at some friend's house and they had just put in a pizza oven and they made pizza and it was phenomenal. And it was like something clicked where I thought, oh my God, I love having pizza at home and you can make really good pizza. And he was really good. He'd been practicing and working on it and really got his technique down. And this was, 
I think in the very beginning of COVID and they had already been working on their pizza oven, but I think the dinner that we had happened to be at the beginning of COVID. So like everyone, we were at home trying to think, what are we going to cook and how are we going to avoid going to restaurants? And our friends who had a pizza oven said, you should get this one, this uni. It's really easy to use and it's better than making it in your oven because that's where I'd always been making it, you know, previously. So we thought, um, in for dime, in for dollar, let's check it out. And we were pleasantly surprised that it was so reasonable. And also because, as you can see back here, we have an outdoor grill, we have a green egg. Yeah. And, you know, so we have a little kitchen sort of area. So it was, and we always have propane because of our other stuff. So I think for a lot of people, the idea of getting propane is very intimidating. You just think, ah, scary and explosive. But we were used to it. So we just decided what the heck and immediately started making pizza every five minutes. It was like, Oh my God. And my son, who of course at that time was doing homeschool and being on Zoom rather, um, and you know, eats 24 hours a day. And in the very beginning of COVID, there was a real paranoia about getting takeout. So yep. the idea that we could make our own pizza was very exciting. I bought the 500 pound sack of flour. <laughs> So like everybody, I had a frightening amount of flour and I bought yeast by the gallon. I mean, we had so much too much. We had supplies I mean, just because that's how you could buy flour at that time. Literally, it was in a hundred pound bag. Anyway, we began, you know, making our own crust and started the whole process. Uh, and my son got really good at it. And I have to say, he's better at it than than my husband and I. And I feel like I still need to learn a little more how to use the oven because it's so intensely hot compared to cooking in in an oven inside the house where there wasn't the flipping it around. Sure. I mean, I've charred more pizzas than I should have but it's just because well, it's, it, it's something to learn yeah yeah i mean have you so it sounds like to me that neapolitan style or neapolitan-ish style is most likely the style that you guys are making the most i'm just wondering if that's true if you have a go-to uh topping combo that you've kind of come out with with all of your use of the oven well my husband and son are you know they're just purists they they are pepperoni pizza men that is they do not yearn for anything else. And, you know, I'll say, oh, how about if we try? And they're like, well, we're kind of good with the pepperoni. I'm always looking to try a slightly different combination. And they're not resistant to it, but that they just don't feel the need. And they they really are so happy having a good pepperoni pizza. Um, you know, every now and again, we've done pesto, you know, doing more of a, I, it's 
it's not even quite a pizza. It's pizza dough where we do pesto and goat cheese. I guess you could call it a pizza. I think of it as, you know, almost、uh, more of a flat. It's not a flatbread, but it's sort of no tomato,、okay. no melty cheese. So it's kind of a different food product, but cooking it in the pizza oven with pizza dough. I don't know. Would you call that a pizza? Sure. You know, it's sort of a different. It, we eat it almost as an appetizer.、Yeah. Susan, I want to be respectful of your time because, as Alfred said, I could sit here and talk with you about this one、uh, star in the many co- the constellations outside of my、uh, my view、um, <laughs> uh, for for a very long time. But just in terms of slices, if you're going to go get a slice somewhere, do you have a go to topping that you will always order, or do you are you a, che- a cheese slice kind of person? I usually get mushroom. Okay. Canned or fresh? Are you have a preference between those two? I really prefer、um, cooked. I mean, my ideal is somebody cooked mushrooms on the stovetop with garlic. Nice. And you know, I don't love canned mushrooms, and but you don't. That isn't always available. But to be honest with you, and I know this is anathema to a lot of pizza people, my personal go to. Is barbecued chicken pizza? It's a California、oh, wow. thing. It's very much a California thing. The first time I had it was like twenty years ago at California Pizza Kitchen, and I thought, okay, it's not like I still fantasize about Baba Louie's regular tomato pie, but that California Pizza Kitchen barbecued chicken with the gouda and the red onion, I thought. Oh my God! I could eat this every night. I really wouldn't feel the need for any other food product, and I had never tasted anything like it. This because it really was easily twenty or twenty-five years ago. So I still tend to order. I mean, look, it's a girl thing too. I don't want like greasy sausage and greasy. Pepperoni. Well, that's a great that's a great tee up for my next question, which is: if you have a greasy slice, will you blot or not blot? You, are you one of those kind of people that、blot. will? Okay, you're a blotter.、Um, do you? How do you like to reheat a slice? Do you have a go to method for reheating your slice? Yeah, this is a new、um, discovery of mine. That if I do it in a skillet, skillet on the stove, and make it really hot. It completely revives the pizza, and sometimes even makes it better. And sometimes when we get a takeout pizza, I'll do that anyway, and just you know, kind of char it, it on the bottom on、um, in a skillet. My husband always tents it with foil, which I think is a little fancy for me. I just do it open face.、Um, but boy, I think it's amazing. Like I would never microwave. Pizza should be a sin. It's a sin. Yeah, I、uh, in my myopic fascination, I look at Parmesan, oregano, garlic, red pepper flakes when you walk into a New York slice joint, almost like reading tea leaves about people and their personalities. So I'm wondering if you have a go-to way of dressing a slice. Do you use any of those things? All of those things? None of those things? When you are going into like a New York style place? Uh, red pepper. Okay, for sure, and occasionally a dash of Parmesan, but. Mostly the red peppers where I'm at. White pizza slices, yes or no?、Uh, on occasion, in the right setting. Anchovies. I love anchovies, so yes. 
And um, my last one, if the zombies were to come, uh, which spot would you lock yourself into? What pizza spot? Would it be Baba Louie's? Would it be? Yeah, okay. it, it it would be Baba Louie's. And I also, I got to add, just because I'm a well-rounded person, they also have the very best salad. So to go there and have their amazing salad and a great piece of pizza, it's like you really could die happy in a zombie apocalypse. It, I'd be fine. I'd be fine. It would actually be a good thing if you're trapped in a pizza place. I mean, really. actually be amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. We welcome those zombies if you're trapped in a pizza place. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, you've- You've sort of already answered this, Susan, but I like to end things with um, perfect slice and where is it from? So are we are we going with uh, mushrooms from Baba Louie's? I would say um, Baba Louie's has to be my perfect slice. And really, honestly, I would do their barbecued chicken, which is really great. But if I needed to be a purist, I would also just say the margarita. Okay. A margarita pizza there with some fresh basil and it's just heaven. Susan, I also want to, uh, there's a couple things on my mind about you that I want to ask you. Um, how are the drums going? You still playing? Oh, uh, you know, I, I'm on hiatus. My okay. career as a drummer yeah. just wasn't quite taking off. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's, it's like a slightly sidelined pursuit at the moment. Who were your biggest influences drum wise? Because I grew up playing the drums, so I'm just curious. Oh, you're kidding. Really? Yep. Yeah. I got drums wow. right behind me. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, You know, I don't have a, you know, I suppose Ginger Baker, just as a fellow redhead, like, why not? I like that. Also, he's a madman and quite a good drummer. He's a real jerk. And a lot of people, because he insulted so many other drummers, they didn't want to give him as much credit. But he's not wrong. Like his, I mean, he could swing. A lot of the drummers yeah. of his ilk could not swing. So, yeah, uh, no, he, yeah that's that's a good amazing. answer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, completely uh, insane. Sadly, many of my heroes um, in the music world are actually jerks. You know, I think the music world in particular has a perhaps oversupply of jerks. But. Certainly, certainly. Uh, and then I, I also have to ask you, because I was amazed, I was amazed learning this, that uh, you were a writer for what, season two of How To with John Wilson? Yeah. How, how did that happen? That show is unbelievable. And I know. It's crazy, it's surreal. And, and I'm just curious to know how the writing for that, how that even works. Well, it's tricky uh, because, you know, it's documentary. Yeah. And... So you're you're writing um, sort of notionally. You're you're basically creating the skeleton of where the story might go, and then at each shoot, it it can. Well, some of it is footage he already has because I would he, imagine he films sort of obsessively constantly. But then some of it is, hey, let's go to a convention of, you know, toilet salesmen and you have no idea what's going to happen. So you write speculatively, but really you're coming up with structure, but it was very challenging. I mean, the show being as unusual as it is, writing for it was unusual and challenging, but also really, really wonderful. I mean, everyone involved was so smart and interesting and and also uh, really fun to work on a show that was so special 
you know, the really that really meant something in its own very particular way. Was season two when they did the Alligator Lounge? Because it was a very bizarre moment for me, having had my 30th birthday there, to have seen that recreated through this lens in on that show. Oh, how funny. No, that was season three, I think. Okay. Well, every time John would turn his lens on something familiar, it would become strange <laughs> and unfamiliar in a way that... I mean, the the whole point was to look at New York in a very different way. And I think it makes you see New York altogether differently. And that was part of the genius of the show, for sure. It was really fun, really, really fun to have that experience. Yeah, and we're surrounded by uh, media, an onslaught of media, and still it's hard to find something truly original. And that show really is. And so it's a really cool thing that you're a part of that show. But Susan, thank you so much for joining us on this. Uh, we're we're thrilled to have you. It's my pleasure. You've made me hungry. That's the only thing <laughs> I can we do. say. I mean, now I'm thinking maybe that leftover pizza in the refrigerator has my name on it. As it should. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> thank you. Uni Pizza Ovens are excited to introduce their first indoor and outdoor pizza oven. Univolt 12. Uni's first all-electric oven, Volt, offers maximum versatility and performance in a beautiful modern design. Whatever the season and in any weather, you can make great pizza. Univolt is so convenient and easy to use. Just plug it in and you're ready to go. Not only does this oven look great, but it reaches 850 degrees and cooks pizza in just 90 seconds. To learn more, visit uni.com. That's O-O-N-I dot com. Today. Attention, everyone, coast to coast, and all the ships at sea. It's time for pizza news. Chain News, Stolen Dough, the documentary premiered in late 2023. It's now available on Amazon Prime, telling the story of Anthony the Big Cheese Mangiello, CEO of Formaggio Cheese in Hurleyville, New York, who claims that at 18, he invented stuffed crust pizza, only to allegedly have his patent stolen by Pizza Hut. That's from PMQ. How many 12-year-olds think they invented stuffed crust? I mean, I'm sure... I'm sure you did. There is, especially before it officially came out, how many yes. kids were sitting in the lunchroom thinking, you want to be awesome if the cheese was in the crust? Well, I mean, with all the viral stuff that happens on social media these days, I feel like that's just everybody's doing it all the time now. And yep. their ideas are all there for everybody to see in the timeline. Speaking of Pizza Hut, I saw this one on KDKA Radio. A recent, can you see things on the radio? A recent tweet went viral showing off a classic Pizza Hut, a location that stayed true to or potentially been remodeled after the brand's old school theme. You know, salad bar, red cups, crushed ice, checker tablecloths, the lamps. A spokesperson said the brand is on a transformation journey with restaurant assets to bring that classic welcoming Pizza Hut ambiance, but in a way that's fresh and modern. File this one under W for what took you so long. There's a full list of locations. I'd seek one out, but the nearest one to me is six hours away in Potsdam, New York, Alfred, near the border with Canada. It's like if any time a big landmark kind of corporation or something does something throwback, yep. I'm always a sucker for it. Like, do you remember when Miller Lite changed their can back to their old Miller Lite can? <laughs> I don't even love Miller Lite. And I was like, give me some of those. I'm in. So I'm a sucker. Make me young again. 
Pizza Inn plans to go big in Saudi Arabia. The buffet chain signed a 50-unit deal with an operator to expand there per restaurant business. Pizza Trends. Been a while since we featured one of our favorite food fad sites. Trend Hunter reports Papa John's is launching new cheesy calzone Papa Bites, part of a growing trend towards bite-sized pizza options. They feature the taste of a Papa John's cheesy calzone epic stuffed crust pizza in a bite-sized format. In Euro trolling news, French pizza chef Benoit Bruel set a Guinness World Record in 2020 for the planet's cheesiest pie with 254 different cheeses, only to have it broken by another chef with 834. So along with some friends, he set out to reclaim it and managed 1,001 different types of cheese, 940 of them French, 61 from other countries. That one's from PMQ. Alfred, I'm grateful to Boing Boing for the headline, Italians Upsetti Spaghetti over Pineapple Pizza. Italians are reportedly, but maybe predictably, furious after famed third-generation Italian pizza maestro Gino Sorbio put pineapple on a pie on the menu at his Naples spot. Margarita con ananas is not your regular Hawaiian. It's a pizza Bianca, no tomato with three cheeses and the pineapple cooked twice for a caramelized feel. Sorbio told CNN he created it to, quote, combat food prejudice. Openings, Penn Station's famed Rose Pizza is serving up slices again. That's the recent Newsday headline. Alfred, we talked about roses in the Rory Albanese episode. This is one of the most famous, to Long Island commuters at least, slicerias in New York City. The subterranean spot shuttered for several years as part of a $600 million renovation project to clean up the Long Island Railroad terminal. It reopened just before the new year, was introduced recently by the MTA with a new name. A new name? A new name? Rose Pizza. New signage, red subway tile, interior, table and counter seating, and a bar full of beer taps with cans also available for commuters to grab and dash with, just like old times. Who says you can't go home again? Today's topic is pepperoni. Alfred, pop quiz. Where is pepperoni from? Well, obviously everyone knows pepperoni derives from an island off the coast of Madagascar called Pepperonza. And there they cultivated a a plant called the pepperonis. And of course, that led to pizza makers discovering it when they would, I have no idea. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so I think most people would think that pepperoni is Italian. And I'm here to tell you that as far as we can really tell, pepperoni is not Italian. There's no Italian salami called pepperoni. And Italian pepperoni without the second P is the plural of pepperoni, P-E-P-E-R-O-N-E, which means large peppers. Ubiquitous, big, green, yellow, and red bell peppers. The cured, dry, slightly spicy, fine-grained sausage traditionally made from pork or a mix of pork and beef, so synonymous with pizza. Its emoji would look like a cheese wedge. Without it, that pepperoni originated in America. Now, while we don't know how or why it came to be precisely, we do know pepperoni is typically made with garlic powder, smoke flavoring, and its signature spice, paprika. Popular in Germany and well-known in traditional Hungarian dishes. Frankly, it doesn't matter where or how pepperoni was born. One, last I checked, Alfred, we're not checking passports. And two, the styles that showcase it aren't Italian and don't pretend to be. Three, it's just social media gold. Now, there are two main options, both zippy, salty, fatty, and smoky when it comes to pepperoni. You've got lay flat and cup and char. 
Flat pepperoni made with a fibrous casing is more orange-red, doesn't curl, and is the most accessible and easiest to use. Cup and char is collagen-cased, dark or bright red, and cups and browns at the edges. Flat is generally more classic than cup and char on New York rounds, a pizza, and Chicago's pies, and cup and char is standard to Detroit-style pizza and artisanal tavern-style New York slices and squares. Yeah, that's... I love it when you do a topic that's educational because, like I've said many times, you're an expert and I'm a dum-dum. And I can say that you can't. But uh, I will say growing up, pepperoni was not my favorite. It was If I was going to have a mm. topping, it was always sausage. sausage. Pepperoni was fine. It wasn't like it, it was, but it was at birthday parties where I would have it and be like, all right, not my first choice, but it's fine. I had pepperoni recently at my local Mr. Dino's in Montclair, mm. New Jersey, and that was, it was really large pepperonis. And I will say mm-hmm. it was delightful. I enjoyed it. Mm. Not everyone did. People thought that was too big. I don't know why. It hit the sweet spot for me and I liked it quite a bit. So yeah, God bless pepperoni. Go for it. I love that. Do you do sausage and pepperoni? On a slice or a pie? I don't like doing that. Because to me, that's like wasted calories. I want one or the other. I don't need both. Got it. Do you? I don't often, but when I do, I'll also add onion. Yeah. That's just a lot. That's a lot. That's like a... You're getting to meat lovers territory, and that's not my jam. Fair enough. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for listening. We have some amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks too so yeah definitely this has been you're gonna get sick of me saying this is a great guest but I'm sorry I'm just telling you the truth these are great thanks so much for listening you can follow me on social media I'm Alfred Schultz thanks for joining the Pizza Pod Party I'm Arthur Bovino at NYC Best Pizza follow the show at Pizza Pod Party and Uni at Uni HQ And remember, a great pie is one you're already thinking about having again before you finish the first slice. See you next week, partygoers. Make pizza. The Pizza Pod Party. Please rate and review the podcast. The Pizza Pod Party is hosted by Arthur Bovino and Alfred Schultz. Produced by Arthur Bovino and Alfred Schultz. Created by Arthur Bovino and Alfred Schultz. Researched by Arthur Bovino. Engineered, edited, and mixed by Alfred Schultz. Voiced by the fabulous Holly Palmieri. And presented by Uni Pizza Ovens. Visit uni.com. That's O-O-N-I dot com to find out more about the world's number one pizza oven brand. And follow Uni on social media at UniHQ on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok.